Stone? Okay, Justin, I can't see you, but I know you're over there. Okay, yeah, I can't see you either. All right, just a couple of quick things. I have a question, first of all. Uh, would you move down here and become part of our church? <laughs> it's tempting, brother. <laughs> it's tempting. If I lived anywhere near the area, this is where I would go to church. It sure is, brother. <laughs> I'll pay your way. You're kind. <laughs> All right, a uh, few questions tonight, and uh, Lord willing, we'll get through it, and it all depends on how long it takes for Justin to answer. Here's one to begin with. How do you talk to your parents and family about Jesus when they say they're Christians, but they don't go to church? Yeah, um, how do you talk to your parents who say they're Christians, but they don't go to church? One thing, if you're, if you're truly a Christian, if you belong to Christ, you're going to love his church. You're going to love his bride. He paid for the church with his own blood, and anybody that tells me they're a Christian but they don't want to go to church, I'm being real honest with them. I have no reason to believe that you're a Christian. None at all. Uh, speak the truth and love to your parents. They are your parents. They deserve respect and, and honor. Um, so speak the truth in love to them. But speaking the truth in love does not mean watering down the truth. It does not mean that we are to dilute the truth. It means exactly what it says. We're to speak the truth, but speak it in love. Um, and tell them that they should examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. And say, Mom and Dad, I love you, but every Christian should love the bride of Christ. And if you don't have a love for the bride of Christ, then there's no reason to think that you are truly a Christian. No reason to think that you belong to Christ. And so share the gospel with them. That's what I would say. Share the gospel with them. And family members are the hardest ones to speak the truth to. Oh my goodness. I know. Family members are the hardest ones to speak the truth to. But if we love them, we should love them enough to Speak the truth. You speak the truth, speak it in love, and you trust God for the results. At least you'll have the blessing of having a clear conscience. At least when your mom and dad die one day, you'll not be racked with that guilt. I should have confronted them. I should have spoken the truth. You'll at least have the blessing of having a clear conscience. So, This one comes with a qualifier from me. Okay. I fully expect all of this to be solved. Where do you stand on eschatology? <laughs> Where do I stand on eschatology? All right. So uh, I am premillennial. I am, uh, I guess you would say, as, as John MacArthur calls it, a leaky dispensationalist. Um, I believe that God has a real plan for Israel. Uh, I do not believe that the church has replaced Israel. I think there are just too many. I think there's too many promises that God made to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. Uh, prophecies that have not yet come to pass. I believe Romans 11 is very clear that God will return to Israel in a very dramatic way one day. Uh, you know, there's basically three major positions premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. And uh, 
to be an amillennial or, or really even a postmillennial too, but to be a, an amillennialist, uh, you've got to the events of Revelation chapter 20 in which Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss and that abyss is sealed so that he can deceive the nations no more. For the amillennial, that what is described in Revelation 20 has to be a present reality. And I just don't see how you get there. I don't see how any of us could look around at this world and think Satan is bound. Uh, I mean, if he is, pardon the pun, but if he is, heaven help us when he's not bound. I mean, so uh, Revelation 20, I think, I think you have to... I think you have to kind of jump the hermeneutical tracks to to accommodate for that. I think, you know, in every other way, we would all affirm a historical grammatical approach to hermeneutics. And uh, But I think to accommodate for amillennialism and, and even postmillennialism, I, I, I think you have to just abruptly and without any real reason to change your hermeneutical grid to accommodate for Revelation 20. So, now... Um, all that having been said, I am—I fully affirm uh, my amillennial and postmillennial brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is not an issue over which we divide. It's not an issue that we break fellowship over. So um, it's not that eschatology is not an important issue. It is, but we don't break fellowship over it. And as I was—I was telling this to—I think it was Charles yesterday. Yeah, Charles yesterday. Um, this isn't necessarily a textual argument per se, but I think something has to be said. Have you ever noticed Israel is the only nation that has ever existed and then ceased to exist and then came back into existence in 1948? The only country, the only nation in the history of the planet that that has ever happened to, Israel. Hebrew is the only language that was ever spoken and then ceased to be spoken and then is now being spoken again. Israel's the only nation. Hebrew's the only language. It's almost like God has a plan for Israel or something. I don't, I don't know. But so anyway, that's, that's where I fall. Also, now one that's a little bit more, I guess you could say, current right now, how should we respond to unbelievers when they mention Robbie Zacharias's scandal, how should we respond to unbelievers? Okay, so I'm going to address that question, and then I'm going to address how do we deal with believers um, in dealing with unbelievers. Robbie Zacharias has been an apologist for Christianity for decades; very popular. I'll be honest, I've never been a fan of Ravi Zacharias, and I'm not just saying this now that all this stuff has come out. I've never been a fan, and people know that. Um, I've, thought, I've always thought he was way too ecumenical, way too mystical, way too philosophical. I've rarely ever heard him do any kind of exegesis, any kind of exposition. He was no theologian. He was just a, an apologist, and... Anyway, all, now that all this stuff has come out, I mean, he, he lived a life of horrific sexual immorality and even lied about his own academic credentials. Um, 
this has brought a lot of reproach on the, on the gospel, a lot of reproach, because he was well-known, and he was accepted even within some of our tight theological circles. Uh, if, a, if an unbeliever were to ask me, well, what about Robbie Zacharias? You know, he was one of your heroes. I would say, well, he was not one of my heroes. Um, and I would say that Robbie Zacharias lived a double life. He was an unstable man. Um, he was not a believer. I, unless, unless God granted him repentance quite literally on his deathbed, there is no evidence that conversion had taken place in that man's life because his life was... Remember how I said a little bit ago, as Christians, we can stumble into sin. We don't swim in it. Ravi Zacharias was swimming in it. Swimming in it. So I would have to say, I, I know, that's, that's horrible. And that does, let me tell you, that is not a real Christian. Because a real Christian doesn't act like that. I would be very clear with that person, that lost person, say that is not, he was not a true Christian. Now I may say, that may sound harsh, but friends, I'm, conf I'm constrained by Scripture. I can go nowhere else. Paul says, for such were some of you. Ravi Zacharias wasn't a were some of you. He, he was those things. Um, now, for Christians, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, he wrote some good stuff. You know, it is, is, it's okay to still use his teaching, right? Nope. It sure isn't. If the, if the message you are preaching has not changed your life, then I don't care to hear anything you have to say. He has brought untold reproach on the gospel. And here's what needs to happen to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. It needs to be burned to the ground. Not in a literal, I'm not saying, I'm not advocating violence here. But that ministry needs to come to an end. There doesn't need to be a Ravi Zacharias International Ministries 2.0. That, that name needs to be deep-sixed. Every book he's ever written needs to be pulled from the shelves, needs to be burned, should never be published, should never be given to anyone else, because the last thing in the world you want to do is give someone an unsuspecting person, a book by Ravi Zacharias, and they read it and they think it's helpful, and then they find out the truth about who that man was. No, that it has brought so much reproach on the gospel, and I don't, I'm a, I don't know how that man flew in under the radar for so long. There's no way that there were not people within that ministry that didn't know that something was going on. No way. So uh, he, he, he is a, it's a, it's a stain that needs to be blotted out. And as Christians, we should have nothing to do with him. We should have nothing to do with promoting his teaching. I feel very strongly about that. One follow-up to that, and this comes from me, the warning that we get in Scripture in Matthew 7 about those that prophesy, mm -hmm. cast out devils, and do miracles in your name, yet Jesus says, I never knew you. Could you speak to the warning it gives to all of us as far as our conversion is concerned? Yes. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is one of the more terrifying verses, passages in all of Scripture. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, 
cast out demons, perform any miracles in your name. And Jesus will look at them and he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Just because someone has the apparent ability to perform a sign and wonder, or to just because, and and let's even remove it from the charismatic uh, framework here, just because someone has a lot of religious activity in their life, and just because someone does a lot of stuff in the name of Jesus, does not necessarily mean that that person is truly regenerate. And these were people who apparently, I mean, that, that repeated word, Lord, Lord, it's like, it's like even they were surprised. That's a terrifying passage of Scripture. There's a reason the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you have those evidences of regeneration that we were talking about? Godly sorrow over sin, love for God's word, love for the brethren, genuine repentance, changing your life, ability to withstand temptation and persecution. Are these things in your life? If they're not, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That is a sobering, sobering passage of Scripture. We are to examine ourselves. I do not believe that having been said, that we're, it's not that we're to live in this perpetual doubt about whether or not we're saved. You know, God doesn't want us to live all day, every day, wondering, am I really saved? Am I really saved? No. In fact, read First John. First, the whole book of First John was written so that we might know that we have eternal life. But uh, that's a sobering passage of Scripture. That, that just because you, you run in religious circles and just because you have religious activity and just because you may claim the name of Jesus does not necessarily mean that you belong to Jesus. Thank you. Okay, uh, just a couple more. We're running out of time, but I'm going to try to consolidate a couple of them. You taught on Roman Catholicism last night. You did an exceptional job with the five solas. Regarding that, and obviously the, um, the teaching of the Roman Catholics and its uh, lack of unity, obviously, with the gospel, how should a Christian ministry respond in the ecumenical approach to ministry, the, the evangelism, evangelicals and Catholics together, the Manhattan Declaration, and very prominent evangelicals that we, are know, that we know as leaders who have joined up with Roman Catholics to fight abortion, homosexuality. Should we do that, or should we uh, refrain from that? Yeah, that's a great question, Pastor Charles. Um, no, we should not do that, and we should refrain from doing that. The differences between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity are as wide as all of eternity. For those of you who were here last night, I think we saw very clearly that Roman Catholicism is not within Christianity. It is not. It is a cult. It is a theological cult just as much as is Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, just as much of a theological cult as those two cults are. And it's, it's really sad that so many evangelicals don't understand that. They think Roman Catholicism, well, they kind of do some weird things, but they're, you know, they're Christians, right? No, they're not. They're not Christian any more than Mormons are Christians. Um, so when it comes to part, like the ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together in the Manhattan Declaration, it's really, really disappointing 
that some well-known evangelical names signed on to one or both of those documents. Very disappointing. We had a Reformation for a reason. Because these are huge differences. The, the, the difference between Roman Catholicism and Christianity is the difference between dark and light. And so I will vote with the Roman Catholic. I'll go into the voting booth and I'll pull the lever or whatever, you know, mark the screen or whatever we do. I'll do that. I'll, I'll vote for the same pro-life candidate with the Roman Catholic but I will not pray with a Roman Catholic. I will not enter into a spiritual endeavor with a Roman Catholic. I'm not going to have a pro-life Roman Catholic come into my church and preach from behind the pulpit. I will evangelize a Roman Catholic, but I'm not going to hold hands with one in a spiritual sense no matter how worthy the, the desired outcome or the, 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 may be, even though that Roman Catholic may be pro-life, and I'll be honest, Roman, well, this gets into what I was talking about last time. Roman Catholics are not pro-life when it comes to Jesus. They're pro-death because they kill him every time they have mass. So it's kind of ironic that any Roman Catholic would profess to be pro-life when it comes to babies when they have no problem killing Jesus, but we talked about that last night. But even if they are pro-life, I'm not going to join hands with that person because that would bring reproach on the gospel. That is being unequally yoked. Uh, so I'll vote with the Roman Catholic, but that's as far as it's going to go. I've, no matter how worthy the outcome, and I take a back seat to no one in my pro-life stance, Abortion is murder, um, and, and it's a judgment of God on this country. But I'm not going to join hands in a spiritual sense. I'm not going to compromise the gospel, even for a desired, a good outcome. All right, one more. Okay, sure. This is a big one. All right. So you were an originator of the Dallas Statement, is that correct, part of that group? One of them, not one the, of, but one, uh, of, yeah, them, yeah. one of them. Yeah. yeah. And the Dallas Statement, for those who don't know, is basically a rebuttal of the social justice movement, mm -hmm. right? So you also understand, as we've talked about it, just how severe this is. Could you speak to just how critical this is to understand and what it will do to the church if it continues? And one other thing, why does it seem that John Piper gets a pass? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. I just say it. All right, yeah, I know. Okay, so the social justice movement, uh, as Pastor Charles just mentioned, we did uh, draw up a statement two years ago, almost 32 and a half years ago, statement on social justice and the gospel. What is so alarming about the social justice movement is that as dangerous as the Word of Faith charismatic movement is, and I obviously care a lot about that, and I still do, as dangerous as, as that is, even though we have people in our doctrinally sound churches, you'll, you will have a few people scattered in the pew that to one degree or another are listening to a Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen or something like that. You know, that happens even in the 
best of the best churches. You'll have a few people in the congregation maybe to one degree or another that are swayed by this. We've never had any of the well-known names in our tight theological circles actually preaching Word of Faith theology or New Apostolic Reformation. We've never had anybody preaching it in our circles. We do with social justice. Social justice is picking off some of the well-known names in our circles, and that is extraordinarily alarming. The social justice movement is so pernicious, and it is, I truly believe, it is one of, the, one of if not the greatest dangers uh, that the church faces right now because it is, it is like a cancer that has crept into our churches. Um, and it seeks to divide us over things that don't matter. It seeks to raise up barriers that Christ has already crushed. And as I've said, I, I've been all around this world. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Central America or South America or Africa one of those countries, you know, Uganda, Zambia, I've been to, South Africa, Ecuador, I've been to India, I've been to Ukraine, I've been, I've been all, European countries, I've been all over the world. It doesn't matter what culture we're in, and it doesn't matter what our skin color, it doesn't matter how much pigment is in our skin. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have family members all around the world. It doesn't matter how much pigment or how little pigment we have. I love what Vody Balkum said one time, and he's, to paraphrase him, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but he said, he said, he said, he said to white people, he said, white people, don't you dare think that God doesn't love you just as much as he loves me just because God gave me more pigment than he gave you. You know, it's just, he said that the, the roof came down. It was just hilarious. Uh, but it seeks to raise up barriers and create divisions that the gospel has already broken down, broken down the, the, the barriers, Ephesians 2, God has broken all of those down, and yet the social justice system seems to wants to raise them back up. And it has been the most divisive thing. And here's what you need to know, dear ones, is the social justice movement is not just about race. By the way, how many races are there? One. 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 You know, and as I look out here, I, I see a lot of white faces, and I see a few darker faces are black brothers and sisters, and you know what? We're the same race. We're the same race. I'm the same race as, 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 a, as a, a Chinese person in China or uh, someone from the Philippines. We're the same race. An aborigine in Australia, we're the same race. There's different ethnicities, but there's one race, okay? So we need to do away with this whole false construct. But it's not just about skin color. You see, there's a lot of different social just there's a lot of different cars on this social justice train. There's the economic car, there's the ethnic car, the skin color car, but then there's also the feminist car. 
that comes along on this train. And you mark my word, one of the things that you'll notice, people who are falling into the social justice movement, they are compromising big time on the biblical roles of men and women in the church. Oh, well, it's okay if a woman preaches on a Sunday morning. I'm not going to name any names, but Beth Moore. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay if a woman preaches on a Sunday morning as long as she has the blessing of the pastor. We're still complementarian. No, you're not. (laughs) No, it's not complementarian. And every denomination that has decided decided to ordain women in the sense of putting them behind the pulpit, that kind of ordination, every single denomination that has done that, after a period of time, they go into full-blown theological liberalism, full-blown apostasy. And it will happen with the Southern Baptist Convention, too. You mark my words, 10 years from now, if not before, the SBC will be compromising on things you never thought they would compromise on. There's the egalitarian train, the putting women into positions that God has ordained only for men. And then there's, a, there's a not, excuse me, a car. Then there's another car on this social justice train, and it's the homosexual car. And people in our circles are already softening on that. Well, yeah, marriage is just for a man and woman. People in the social justice movement say it. But in homosexuality, well, acting on it is probably a sin, probably. But the desire is not sinful. The desire is not sinful. You've started down a very slippery slope. Any desire for something that is sinful, the desire is also sinful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be deceived, my brethren, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. For such were some of you. That in the Greek, such were some of you, that is very, very strong language. You were those things, but you're not now. You have broken from that. You have a completely new identity. You're no longer identified with those sins. You've broken from them. Well, you can, be, you can be a gay Christian as long as you don't act on it. No, there's no such thing as a gay Christian. Okay, and so there's already been a tremendous amount of compromise on homosexuality. That's happened just in the last couple of years. Breathtaking compromises. Error always begets more error. So it's not, when you hear social justice, don't think it's just about skin color. That's just one of the cars on that train. There's a lot of other cars on that train, too. It's very, very dangerous. And uh, I really think, I, I really think as, as the years go on, it's, it's going to be a, it already is, a tremendous dividing line in the body of Christ. And uh, when persecution be- comes to this country in a more earnest way, we're going to see we're going to see uh, those lines become very, very clear. Uh, very, it's very dangerous. So, All right. one other clarification. Uh, yeah, sure. With John Piper. Oh, yeah. Said about him, but also just because there hasn't seen, there hasn't been a lot of uh, 
guess you could say, response to some of his response to some charismatic leaders and and uh, Rick Warren and things like that. Just a few comments on that. Yeah, yeah, I forgot all about that part of the question. Uh, John Piper. Many of us in here have greatly benefited from John Piper and his preaching and teaching and writing, and, and I would be one of those. Um, but John, McKay, John John Piper, I guess the first real big flag was probably about 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, when John Piper interviewed Rick Warren and um, uh, praised Rick Warren, and he's done so on several occasions since then. And Rick Warren is a false teacher. I mean, he is. Rick Warren is a man who has signed a document that actually says that Yahweh and Allah are the same God. And, and John Piper has praised him, and that has just left a lot of us really scratching our heads like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You're, you're John Piper. What, what are you doing with Rick Warren, you know? And honestly, I really think that uh, the... The thing that has led John Piper down a very troubling path is that John Piper is a charismatic. John Piper believes in the continuance of the apostolic gifts, the signed gifts. Some of you may have seen the video in which he was talking about tongues. And he says, I've never spoken in tongues, but I've prayed for it. And he said in his own words, he said, Lord, give me this toy. He referred to the gift of tongues as a toy. Lord, give me this toy. And I really believe that once you take the charismatic position, the sufficiency of Scripture is out the window. And the camel's nose is under the tent. And there are just really no, there's no logical or theological reason to stop from where John Piper is from getting into where Benny Hinn is. It's the same error. It's just that Benny Hinn is, is a lot more uh, flamboyant, but it's the same basic error. Once you become a charismatic, the sufficiency of Scripture is gone, that you cannot have both. They are mutually exclusive positions. And I've seen it with John Piper. I've seen it with um, Mark Driscoll. Uh, well, Stephen Furtick, he's way, way out there, but... Uh, but one of the thing that the thing that all of these men have, even when their soteriology is right, and John Piper's soteriology is right, uh, but the the error that they all have is that they're all charismatic, they're all continuous, and that leads them inevitably to compromise in a profound lack of discernment, a profound lack of discernment. John Piper should know better than to endorse Rick Warren. I mean, he he should know better. And I really believe it comes down to that issue. The sufficiency of Scripture is gone. So um, I fully expect to see John Piper in heaven one day. Uh, but because of his glaring error and his involvement even to, to some degree with the social justice movement, he's not as out there as some are, but he's, he's, he's got one foot in, one foot out. Um, because of the, those things, I could not at this point in good conscience point people to John Piper. And it pains me to say that. Thank you all for your patience staying. I know it was long. We appreciate Justin's willingness.